Our scripture today is um, Song of Songs 5, 2 through 8, and 7, 10 through 13. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. This is the very word of God. Well, we've been studying together, of course, the book that we know as the Song of Songs. Uh, the title, actually, for this sermon series has been the thrill of love, and the song of songs. Uh, this is, as we've been saying throughout, a book, a book of the Bible, can you believe it, that is celebrating romantic love and its physical expression. But our thesis throughout this series has been that that romantic love and its physical expression is telling us something very important about the love of God. Uh, now, you and I may be quite comfortable talking about and thinking about God's love as a father to children, or we might be perfectly at home talking about God's love as some sort of an affectionate love, like a friendship love or a partnership love. And both of these are also realities that the Bible addresses when it speaks about the love of God. But the one that we tend to really have a hard time getting our minds around is this aspect of God's love, that God loves us as, well, a lover. Um, are we too prudish to think of the love of God that way? Now, at times, of course, we need to be careful, as I think the Song of Songs is, in being um, very appropriate in how it paints the picture for us. We should speak about the love of God. We know we're on holy ground when we talk about it like this. We should be appropriate when we do so. Um, but also, is this... Are we okay with this kind of intimacy? Are we able to, to be exposed by the love of God? 
This is the kind of love that the Song of Songs is trying to press us into. A love of God that makes us uncomfortable, but in that intimacy, in that exposure, we find a love that we've never known before. Now, this morning, as I mentioned, I want to try to tackle with you three chapters in the Song of Songs, and then next week we are going to wrap up, uh, Lord willing, this series together. And this morning, as we look at chapters 5, 6, and 7, and part of the reason I'm doing this is because uh, much of this territory, much of what we're going to see here is uh, really a repeat of what has already happened in the song, more stuff to be discovered here, but many of the similar themes. But when we think about this kind of love for God, uh, th- or this kind of love that God has for us, when we think about that in the context of a romantic and even a physical expression of that love, I want us to consider this morning the fact that this kind of love is gratifying, terrifying, and unifying. A love that God has for us that is gratifying, terrifying, and unifying. So let's begin this morning with chapter 5, verse 2, which is where this section begins, down to chapter 6, verse 3. In this section, most of chapter 5, in the first few verses of chapter 6, we find the female voice speaking first, and as she has done before, she tells us something like a little mini-story. And this story demonstrates how gratifying intimate love is meant to be. We jump in here in verse 2. The female voice begins saying, I slept, but my heart was awake. And the image that unfolds here is of a woman in a light or semi-conscious sleep because she is filled with anticipation. She is waiting for something. Her heart is roused as she announces that she has heard a sound. She tells us that this is the sound of her beloved knocking. And as the story goes on, Ellen read it for us, you might have imagined a scene, something like this, with a man standing outside in the elements, rain is falling down, and he's trying to get in out of the, out of the rain. Uh, the words that he speaks in verse 2 Make it sound as if there's a door that is separating the man from the woman. And here he is um, outside in the rain, hoping that she'll let him in. But at this point in the Song of Songs, you probably are suspicious that that's not quite the image that she is telling us. Here, let me just point out that in spite of the knocking in verse 2, the latch, as the ESV reads in verse 4, and the handles of the bolt in verse 5, as you read through these verses, what you will not find mentioned here is a door. There seems to be something else that the man wants the woman to open, and it is This particular motif of opening that is emphasized throughout this little mini-story. The word occurs four times in the song, three of which are right here in this passage in verses 2, 5, and 6. The woman does open 
to her beloved, and it is quite clear that if there's a door, it is her. She is the door. So this is, once more, an erotic story. But what does it add to our consideration of this kind of love, this erotic, intimate, physical love? Now, it seems that there is almost a sense of disappointment in verse 6, as if the woman opens up to her beloved a bit too late. Verse 3 might be taken as her initial unwillingness to let her beloved in, but verses 4 and 5 are just too explicit to make that conclusion. Just consider that the word latch in verse 4 is the Hebrew word for a hole. And the word hand is often in the Bible and a euphemism for a different part of the male body. I won't say much more than that. So when the woman says in verse 4 that her now awakened heart was thrilled within her, she is telling us that this is something that she very much wants. I take it then that verses 2 and 3 are playful banter between the two lovers. And yes, I get a little embarrassed talking like this in front of you all. I'll just admit it. Verses 4 and 5 suggest that they're, they're lovemaking and its delights. So what I want us to focus on then is what we are told in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 can hardly be taken to mean that the man has disappointed the woman in some way. Instead, what is happening here, I think, is that the poem is taking us in two different directions at the same time, like only poetry can do. We're looking at the masterpiece, and we're sitting there, and we're, what do you see? And you say this, what do you see? And you say this, and it's like, well, those are kind of opposite things. That's what art can do, right? The woman describes her encounter as an absolute thrill in verse 4. But in verse 6, it's like she has, she's just missed out on the full experience. And so she has to go searching for her lover again, like she's done before. The previous time she told the story, it was all about a search. You remember that? So put these together, and I think the poem is here asking us to consider gratification and the desire for further gratification. It's, it's basically like saying, one commentator says, I can't get enough of you. Happily married couples who are in love know that feeling. Now, that is the feeling that you are meant to have with God too. For, get this, are you ready? God feels that way about you. He loves us like that. He wants us to open ourselves to him more and more. And some of you are holding back. Many Christians today simply don't go there. We don't think of God and our relationship to him like this. And yet God 
opens himself up to you more and more. He's inviting you into this gratification of love. Now, as we move into verse 7, we read again about the watchmen in the city. We heard about them in the previous story the woman told back in chapter 3. But this time, her encounter with them is disturbing. Whatever this verse means to communicate, and as you can guess, the commentators are suggesting all sorts of things. What do these watchmen represent? What is taking place here? At the very least, I think we can say, as one commentator puts it, that what we have here is a forceful reminder of the perils of love. When it comes to our sexuality and the love that God made us to experience because of it, the trouble comes in many forms and in many ways. Is this picture suggesting to us some sort of sexual abuse? If so, it speaks to a large audience. About 80% of women and 43% of men in the United States report some experience of sexual harassment or assault in their lifetime. That's a lot of people. The trouble can begin quite early in life. An estimated 20% of girls and 5% of boys are victims of sexual abuse. If this is your experience, and if the statistics play out, that's the experience of a lot of us, then I want you to know the Bible sees you. God knows. God cares. Does this picture suggest misogyny based on some oppressive cultural expectations for women? It very well may. And I know that that is a controversial subject for any society. As Christians, we should enter into those kinds of conversations and we should do so humbly. Being ready always to admit any sin where we have held to some traditional understanding of gender rather than a thoroughly biblical one. We are Christians. We should be reformed by the word of God, not by cultural assumptions and, and traditions. So we need to have those conversations we need to have them take place even here within our own congregations. Brothers and sisters, we must resist any form of misogyny right here at our own church. It just cannot be tolerated. Let me speak. Brothers, to you and to me, we must know, our, our, our sisters here must know, and they must feel, that they are, as the Bible says, truly, without hesitation, heirs with us in the grace of life. We got to fight for that. Because this is a reality that women all over the world have experienced. Does this picture suggest some sort of trouble 
within intimacy that many married couples know quite well? It sure can remind us of that. And, and if that's true for you, as it is true for so many married couples, you need to get some help, even professional help, because this really does matter. So whatever the trouble may be, as we read on, we notice that the woman seems to not be deterred by it. She just states, verse 7, almost matter-of-factly and just keeps on going. She does not give up on love and intimacy because of the problems and troubles that she's encountered, and neither should we. The chorus then speaks in verse 9, essentially asking if the woman's beloved is worth all the trouble. Why not just give up on the search? It's too painful. It's too hard. But what follows in the next several verses is the woman's answer to that chorus. Is your beloved really worth it? Is he worth all the trouble? Verses 10 to 16, she begins to praise her beloved. She begins to describe what he means to her. This is the assurance that the woman is able to answer with as we get into chapter 6. And the chorus says, where has your beloved gone? And the woman is able to say in verse 2, she knows exactly where he is. Because what has just happened in verses 10 to 16 at the end of chapter 5 is that by asking, is he worth all the trouble, she begins to praise him. She begins to, she begins to can I say, sing of what, she, what he means to her. And when she's done with the praise, she finds, ah, there he is. He's right where I thought he would be all along. And she is reminded that intimate love is worth the trouble. And so it is with God. Some of us have given up, or well, you're, you're here, so maybe you are about to give up, or you're thinking of giving up, because you've forgotten what is so special about God that he's worth the trouble. You've experienced trouble, in the love of God? Circumstances have you wondering, well, if God loves me, why? You ever ask that question? Nobody here has ever asked that question. Shocking. You know that pain. This is one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, why it is essential for us to gather like this and praise God. God. Is he worth the trouble? And as we gather together and we sing songs like we sang this morning, God intends for us to know once again, yes, he's wonderful, he's worth it, and he's right here among us. He has not left us, he has not abandoned us, and his love for us is gratifying. So, I hope you don't, like, get in a habit of just, like, skipping the praise, skipping the worship, showing up a little late. <laughs> we, we sing songs partly so that God is brought to remembrance before us. And as we sing his praise, we experience the gratification of his love. Now, we come to Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4. And now, at this point... 
the male voice begins to speak. And for the most part, I think it's his voice all the way through verse 9, chapter 7. With a couple of exceptions, we'll see as we go along. And as he did in his last monologue in chapter 4, he once again mostly speaks about his fascination with his lover's body. As he does so, we get the sense not only that love is gratifying, but from his perspective, and we've seen this already, but from his perspective, love is also terrifying. Not in an awful way that is revolting, but in an awesome way that is captivating. So he begins here by comparing the woman's beauty to two cities. One of them you know quite well, Jerusalem. But he mentions the city of Tirzah. Tirzah was the initial capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Just as Jerusalem was, of course, the capital city of the southern kingdom. Uh, It appears that Tirzah was chosen as the first capital city of the northern kingdom because of its natural beauty. The Hebrew word Tirzah means, should we go get Tirzah? Is she here? What what does your name mean, Tirzah? What did she say? God's delight. Yeah, it comes from a Hebrew word that means beauty or pleasure. Isn't that amazing? That's a good name. So, Tirzah, along with the beloved city of Jerusalem, are apt analogies for the man to use as he expresses his delight, that's in the manuscript, in the woman's beauty. Is that how you think of the love of God for you? As the man praises the woman's physical beauty, he once again speaks of the various parts of her body. He begins here praising her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her cheeks. And in chapter 7, which we're not going to read much of this, he resumes. But this time he begins with her feet and works his way up, enamored by her entire physical appearance. Much of what he says here, as I mentioned, he's said before, but I want to draw your attention to some additional details in these descriptions. For example, look at chapter 6, verse 4. Here he moves from the image of the capital cities as being lovely, beautiful, to the fact that as capital cities, they are also the seat of government. It's a consolidation of power. So the woman is not only to him beautiful like Tirzah in Jerusalem, she is also, he says, awesome as an army with banners. You, can you see the scene? You see a massive army going out to war, the flags flying, intimidating. This is awesome, right? It's terrifying. You'll notice that he uses that same phrase in verse 10, bookmarking this section. And in verse 10, instead of comparing the woman to the royal cities, he compares her, this is interesting, to the beauty of the moon and the brightness of the sun. And I asked myself, well, did I, have I ever thought that the moon is beautiful? Maybe you do. 
but it's, it's um, compared here with or used with uh, the sun seems to be describing a beauty as an awesome spectacle, like the sun at daytime, the moon, of course, the brightest object in the night sky. It gets your attention, right? It's awesome. It's fascinating. This is what the woman's beauty is to the man, and he wants her to know it. So in verse 5, when he begins to describe her physical features, he tells her this, turn away your eyes from me. Look what he says, for they overwhelm me. And the word that he uses here, translated overwhelm, is a bit difficult to define because it occurs only three other times in the Old Testament, and every single time the ESV translates it differently, the different English word. When you see that, that just means that this is, a, this is a word in the original that's just, there's not a word in English that does it. What the context here makes plain is that the man is saying something like uh, expressing his excitement to the point that he feels like he's lost control. Most guys don't like to be out of control. They like to be in power why we have the problems we often have. And this is an experience that he says like an, like an army with banners, like the moon and the sky or the sun. I am just undone. She is just too much for him. So he says, look away. But of course, he means the opposite. <laughs> so in verse 4, he compared the woman's beauty to royal cities. Notice in verse 8, he speaks of royal courts. He speaks of 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. Now, if there's anywhere that one might look to find the most desirable women in ancient days, you'd go to the royal palace. These were the ancient equivalents of beauty pageants. But one man but here the, this man says of his love in verse 9, she is the only one. She stands out to him, not only for her beauty, though she is certainly beautiful, but hers is an awesome beauty. Pure, verse 9 says. She is so much more than the sum of all her parts. All the other women in the palace concede the point in verse 9. They use the word blessed. The whole picture, I think, is meant to communicate to us that in the eyes of her beloved, the woman is the undisputable attraction, a beauty of body and soul, so powerful that she inspires by her very presence the kind of awe, wonder, and dare we say, reverence that the moon and the sun can do for us. Now, in verse 11, I think the voice is the female voice. She says she has gone down to the nut orchard and looks at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines have budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And those are, as we've seen before, certainly erotic images. Intimacy is implied by those words. But in verse 12, we find one of the most difficult parts of the entire song to interpret. 
which is why the English versions will be vastly different in trying to translate verse 12. The clearest thing to be said about this verse is that there is here, there's some kind of a, of a passion, a strong passion, a passion that is ba- basically like a rapture. It, it picks her up and carries her, transports her until she is in the presence of her lover again, which is exactly what he wants. I take verse 13 then to be his voice again, calling her back to him so that he can pick up where he left off. He can resume looking at her, describing what he sees, which is exactly what he does in chapter 7. Now here, of course, he calls her the Shulamite, which is, by the way, not her proper name. There's the definite article there, the Shulamite. This is not her proper name, but appears to be something of a word play on the name Solomon. Both words are derived from the Hebrew word, you know this, shalom, which means not just peace. It means peace, but it is, it is wholeness. It is perfection. When you encounter shalom, you are conquered, overpowered. It is overwhelming to encounter what the Bible calls shalom. It is an awesomeness such that you got to look away. But you look away because you want to look again. You ever tried looking at the sun? <laughs> you see it and you're like, but take a little glimpse. So, as the man begins to praise the woman's features again in chapter 7, this is his way of conjuring her up again. Like she did with him, praising what, she, what he means to her, how valuable he is. Um, when she did that in chapter 5, she compares him on a couple of occasions to gold and precious jewels. When he does this, he praises her overpowering beauty, and it's as if she appears again before our eyes. She is beautiful, verse 6 says, pleasant, full of delights. So she and the love that she represents is also worth the trouble. And the trouble he mentions is described in verse 8. I'm sure you can catch the imagery. It's like having to find a way to get to the top of that palm tree to get its fruit. So both lovers have described for us the thrill of love. And they have done so in such a way that not only tells us about what romantic love can and should be like within a marriage, but doing so in such a way that we should begin to see this is what the love of God is like. In the Bible, whenever God appears in what we usually refer to as a theophany, what happens? The result every single time in the Bible you see a theophany is pretty much the same. It's awesome. 
It's, it's terrifying. There's a sense of terror and dread, but there's also this overpowering sense of wonder and awe. And my brothers and sisters, if you cannot relate to that when it comes to God, then it may well be that what you have not yet come to understand, and that the Song of Songs is trying to help you understand, is the terrifyingly awesome love of God. And you really have to understand it. I have to understand it. Like this, in some ways, the whole quest of the Christian life is to try to get to this understanding, this experience of the love of God. We must come to know it. Your salvation depends on it. Because to be saved does not mean simply or only or merely to have your sins forgiven so that God is not angry with you. Some of us, you've thought that way for so long that the picture you have is that God is just somebody who has to be pleased, somebody who has power over you, and he's mad at you, and you need your sins forgiven, so he's not mad at you. There's a truth to that. But to be saved means, in the Bible, clear as day, to be united to him. To be married to him. The Bible uses that image. You see, love is not only gratifying and terrifying, but the love of God is, for your salvation, unifying. It puts all the broken pieces back together. It brings shalom, wholeness, peace. Perfection, it brings salvation. And I want you to see this as we come to the end of this section of the song. When the woman speaks at the end of chapter 7 in verse 10, she speaks of this shalom when she says, look what, she's, look what she says here. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Did you catch that? You didn't, so I'm going to help you. It's my job. That's very similar to what the woman has said twice before. Chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 3. We had a whole sermon on this entitled, I am his and... Yeah, that's not what she says here. She says, I am his, and his desire is for me. You say, Ben, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Here's the big deal. Oh, this gets me excited. I'm trying to get you excited. I am not going to quit preaching until I get like an amen, besides from Clyde and Rusty. You guys help me out a lot. Working overtime here today. I'm trying. This time, instead of saying, he is mine, she says, his desire is for me. And here's why this matters. This word, translated desire, is also a very unique word in the Bible. You'll find it only two other times. And this is really important. 
It's found in Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7. In those two places, desire is used to speak of brokenness. The brokenness of the world first in the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. God says, because of sin, because of brokenness, your desire, he says to the woman, your desire, same word, will be toward him and he will rule over you. Where we see misogyny, where we see brokenness in male-female relationships in marriage in the world, the Bible says that's a result of the imperfection, the brokenness of sin. The second time it happens is in a similar type of context. Genesis 4, verse 7, where God tells Cain, sin desires to rule over you or be toward you, but you must rule over it. You want to be saved? Then this broken desire has to be made right. So when the woman says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me, she is describing the world made right. When two lovers find delight in one another, when they desire one another in ways that are mutually edifying and thrilling, when that happens, you have, you've experienced shalom, a little taste of the world to, that is promised, the world to come. When desires are right and there is mutual enjoyment, there we have salvation. We have life rather than death. This is a love that is pure, undefiled, unfading, a love that unifies and doesn't separate. So in verses 11 and 12, the woman invites her beloved to the vineyards. And then she says these words, there I will give you my love. No compulsion, no demand like the watchman on the walls. She gives freely. And the man presumably receives thankfully. That is love in its purest form. Love in its purest form is a gift that is given freely and received thankfully. And then when we get to verse 13, the picture that's painted here before us is one in which the whole spectrum of delights is laid out before us, known, as one commentary says, known only to lovers who appreciate how new the familiar can be. A whole spectrum of delights known to lovers who appreciate how new the familiar can be. It reminds me of the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. Jesus says this, verse 51, he says, Have you understood all these things? He's been talking, he's been giving parables about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like this, kingdom of God like this. And he says, Have you understood all these things? And then he said, therefore, 
every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The promise of the kingdom of God is the promise of a love that takes the familiar, the old, and transforms it till it's radically new. It's what God has promised to do. To make all things new is not in the Bible. Scrapping the old, throwing it away, and then God just doing something all over again. And too many Christians have thought, well, that's, that's what God's, that's what the Bible's about. The world's going to hell, so God's going to throw it away, and he'll just create some disembodied floating in the sky, I don't know, streets of gold. The Bible uses these metaphors, right? But you're missing the point. The promise of the kingdom of God is the promise in which God will take the old, the familiar, and make it new. Thanks, Clyde. Clyde's with me. I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you. That, brothers and sisters, is the thrill of the love of God. God is going to take your familiar body and make it new. God out of sheer love, is going to take a world that you know fairly well, and he's going to resurrect it and make it new. That's the thrill of the love of God in Christ for his own. Let us pray. Father in heaven, may you grant to us the grace to understand that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has already broken in. As the Apostle Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Right there we see it. The reason we worship and adore and praise our God is because, yes, there's more to come. Yes, there is a gratification that will take eternity to fully satisfy, but oh, how wonderful. Oh, how joyful. Oh, how thrilling is the love of God in Christ that has already broken in. May we who name the name of Jesus, who claim him as our own, may we come to know all the more the thrill of God's love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.